Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to today's episode of Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. Through this series, we are learning about the very latest in myeloma research and learning about clinical trials that are moving us closer towards better treatments and a cure, and how we can participate to drive towards that cure. If you'd like to hear about the very latest in a weekly email about the interviews, we invite you to subscribe to our Inpatient Minute newsletter. Just go to the homepage, www.mpatient.org. You can find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages there as well. Thousands of you have listened in to past episodes, and the numbers are quickly growing. I notice that as we become more educated about myeloma, we start asking more questions. The most important question I hear is, what does this mean to me? We all want to know how to make the flood of information personally relevant. This is not an easy thing to do in myeloma, because we hear that all myeloma is different and that the disease can change over time. Today's interview is with Dr. Gareth Morgan, not only a myeloma specialist, but one who is looking to answer this important question. How can we achieve personalized medicine in myeloma? As an introduction for Dr. Morgan, um, I'd like to describe his background a little bit. Dr. Gareth Morgan is a professor of hematology at the Institute of Cancer Research and is a consultant hematologist at the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust. After attending medical school at the University Hospital of Wales, he completed a PhD and trained in the molecular genetics and management of blood cell cancers at the ICR. He left the ICR to join the University of Leeds where he set up his own research group, studying the molecular genetics of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and myeloma. He's an internationally respected clinician and researcher who has published extensively on the genetics and treatment of these diseases. His research focuses on using new targeted treatment strategies based on a deep molecular analysis of individual myeloma types using newer diagnostic tools. One of the major aims of his research group is to develop personalized medicine strategies for myeloma with the aim of overcoming treatment resistance. He has run and continues to run a large number of clinical trials and uses his discoveries in the clinic. He is widely published with over 400 articles. He is recognized both nationally and internationally and has been scientific secretary for the British Society of Hematology. He is currently scientific secretary for the UK Myeloma Forum. He reviews for a number of journals and sits on grant giving bodies both in the UK and internationally. He has been instrumental in creating the European Myeloma Network. He's a director for Myeloma UK, scientific advisor to the IMF, and is on the board of the UK Stem Cell Bank. Now, because Dr. Morgan is located in the UK, oh, we are going to give him a minute. Um, And Dr. Morgan, do we have you on the call? You do. Oh, I'm so pleased. Your time couldn't have been better. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so no, glad you're joining us. No, All right, well, for the invite. well, thank you for joining us. 
So now I gave a little bit of background about you, um, a short bio, and and when I hear patients ask questions, you know, you'll go to patient conferences or you'll be, um, you know, on my website or other websites. Most of the time patients will say, I have this kind of myeloma, I've gotten this kind of treatment, and really what does all this information mean to me personally? Um, they want information and help that matters to them. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that your your whole approach is to perform personalized medicine for myeloma, and I think it's a very bold and wonderful approach, and I'm very excited that you have that approach. So maybe you could give for everyone just a background first of um, of the approach and what your research is trying to do overall, and then we can get into a lot of detail because we have a lot to talk about. Okay, so um, I guess the best way to describe it is that you know, everybody sees myeloma. Um, you look in the bone marrow, and what do you see? A sort of a plasma cell. It looks like a plasma cell. It looks like a malignant plasma cell, and you get a diagnosis of multiple myeloma. There's a lot more detail that you should superimpose on on top of that now. So, you know, we know that some patients with myeloma won't respond to treatment. Some will respond and relapse quickly, and others will stay in remission for years and years and years. So almost by definition, myeloma is not a single disease. It's Mm -hmm. a group of diseases with different prognosis, different natural history that all just happen to look like plasma cells. And so the real thing is we don't understand the language of plasma cells to be able to separate the different risk groups. So really what I kind of like to do or try to do is to understand a sort of language you can superimpose on on top of just looking at the plasma cells that will say this is a patient who will respond well, this is a patient who will respond badly, um, this is a patient who will have more bone disease. And I think it's coming to a stage now where we have the tools to really answer those questions. And so that's what personalized medicine is. At one level, it's about who has high-risk disease. And I think, you know, we're at a time now where there should be tests applied to define if patients are high-risk when they're first seen. And then beneath that level, there's what what molecular subtype and we can use that information to design specific treatments for those molecular subtypes. So well, that's, seems, that's really what I try okay. to do. Well, it seems a lot of that is based on the diagnostics. And then I was reading about your group that you were using some newer diagnostics. So can you tell us what tools you use to try to determine the subtype of myeloma? So... Um, so there's a variety of tools. Um, so one of those tools is called iFish. Um, iFish is a um, technique that's a- available um, more or less globally, and there are a kind of maybe six important um, prognostic factors that you can detect with iFish, and you should have a panel of tests for all six, and then you can define the risk of the patient is if you have one abnormal lesion, you do pretty good. If you have two, maybe not so good. If you have three, you really need to consider the, the type of 
treatment that you're having. Um, then we move into the, the sort of molecular world and um, there's a test called RQPCR, which you can use to define many of the, the risk variants associated with myeloma. And it actually turns out it's not a very expensive test and is, is applicable. And the third level are these gene expression profiles. And there's been good work done by ourselves, the group in Arkansas and uh, people in the Mayo that identify signatures of people who have high-risk disease. And maybe 20% of people at presentation can be identified as having really poor prognosis disease who do badly with current treatment strategies that we should be altering the treatment approach as soon as we know their risk status. And that's about state of the art currently. Okay, now when it comes to fish, I know that the fish can tell you the translocation maybe that you have, and so can the gene expression profiling. And I know some facilities use one of the, over the other. For example, we talked to the Mayo Clinic, and they really heavily rely on the fish analysis. And then University of Arkansas and University of Iowa are, always will use the gene expression profile. Yeah. So what does the gene expression profile give us over the fish, or how is that? How, what does that give us that's different from fish? So um, it will tell you everything that the fish um, will tell you. But in addition, there are these things called signatures. And a signature is like a group of genes that are over or underexpressed. Um, they put, put a lot of reliance on the 70-gene signature from uh, Arkansas. And that 70-gene signature identifies people who will have a median survival of you know one to one to two years in contrast to the to the rest of patients who will have a median survival of you know you know out, out to 10 years plus and so the important thing is that if we don't do those kind of tests you don't know how people are going to behave to start with and up front is when we should be you know, maximizing the treatment to try and get the best outcomes we can. And, well, I would I would agree. Just I guess I've had this test, and um, it was helpful. But I know that some of the physicians will say, well, it's not, it's not going to alter your treatment. But if our ultimate goal, in my mind, is to get to a personalized treatment based on potentially mm-hmm. specific genes, mm-hmm. then wouldn't you need this? I would think I, I, you, you I, would I need this. I think we've we've hit a time where it's very difficult to move forward with this. You know, we're continually improving treatments. It's been a decade of, of great um, excitement and you know self-congratulation in a way that things have gone gone so well. And you know, there are some new treatments around, but they will get increasingly difficult to. Um, to validate in the clinic and one of the groups that really is under investigated and a place where you can investigate new treatments is the high risk group because you know we need specific trials of therapies that actually work in high risk we don't even know really what the biology of high risk disease is and simply investigating that is going to be a big step forward so um 
you know, this is a group of patients that, that needs to be identified and we need kind of more studies on that group of patients to understand it. And then we need therapeutic trials specifically for that group of patients. Okay, well, that would be wonderful. And, and does the gene expression profile, is that what's considered gene sequencing? Or is that a different No, no, that's totally... To- gene sequencing is um, the sort of next level of complexity on, on top of this um, gene profiling. So the, the gene sequencing takes all of the kind of DNA sequence um, from a patient and looks for mutations that are driving the, the disease. So you hear lots of people talking about driver mutations for myeloma. And we're starting to understand more. And, you know, MYC is clearly a driver mutation for myeloma. And if we target MYC, I think we'll make some progress for myeloma patients. People also say that there's no unifying mutation in myeloma, and I'm starting to think that's not correct because in maybe 50% of all myeloma cases, there's a mutation of a gene or gene pathway called the RAS pathway, and that, I think, is a driver mutation, and I think it's a pathway that can be targeted. And so the, the beauty of these mutations is if they're driver and you understand how they're working, you can design treatments specifically against that pathway, switch the pathway off and get patients into a remission. Mm-hmm. Now, well, I want to I share with you, I guess, one of the reasons or the biggest reason that I um, wanted to interview you. I, I, I think patients are you know, hoping and praying that we find this needle in the haystack. And one day I got the Wall Street Journal, I opened it, the front page had a story on it about a patient who was looking at a gene-specific treatment for her lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And the article talked about the ALK gene, the KRAS gene, the EG- yep. e- EGRF gene, and I can't even share with you how profound I was, profoundly I was affected by that article. I just kept coming back to it on my kitchen counter saying, thinking, this is really significant. So I thought, I wonder if these genes are applicable in myeloma. So I started doing some searching online, and which led me to you and your group. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that is that is one. I just feel that what you're doing is very, very significant. So a question about that, if we know that, I know that some of these translocations, like 414 is not a great one to have, and that it's associated with MMSET or FGFR3. Have we, if all myeloma is different, have we matched up different genetic mutations with different translocations? So, um the 414 translocation you're talking about is one that's sort of dear to my heart in, in a way. It, it is a poor prognostic lesion, but I, I think it's really, really important to say that not all patients who have a 414 do badly. And if those patients are treated well, and one of the dogmas is that they seem to do 
uh, very well with the introduction of proteasome inhibitors like Valcade, but that is one reason for identifying that subgroup of cases. The other is, you, you rightly say that translocation deregulates two genes. Um, we used to think it was FGFR3 that was the target, but it's pretty certain that it's MMSET that's the target. And so there are at least two or three different academic groups around the world that are trying to make drugs that specifically switch off MMSET. And while we don't have those drugs as yet, within the next year we will have drugs, I think, that are able to switch off MMSET. And because it occurs early on in the natural history of myeloma, hopefully that's going to put people into a remissions. And so that's a fine example of personalized treatment that is going to work in myeloma. The other example is, you know, we did this, made this test looking for chromosomal translocations, and we found a, a specific translocation that was exquisitely rare, may have been a one-off, that overexpressed the EGF receptor gene. And the importance about that is, if you had known that for that patient, EGF was overexpressed in that patient. There are drugs that are available for colon cancer that may have worked for the patient with multiple myeloma. And so identifying actionable mutations where a treatment already exists in another disease, like ALK, say, and then translating that into myeloma, is really of, of potential importance, I think. Well, and that's what this patient was trying to do for lung cancer. She was drumming up people who were doing research for that particular gene mutation in other cancers, and she was really inserting herself into their clinical trials. Yeah, no, and I think it's... Uh, there's only one trial that, that's really go, gone that way as yet. But over the next years, I, I, I think instead of people treating diseases in a way, there's going to be a lot of interest in treating mutations because what works for a mutation in one disease should work for a mutation in another. That's the hope. Yeah. And now how is a gene like um, EG, EGFR or... or um, other ones like MMSET or the others identified by which test specifically? Um, so you have to um, look for specific mutations and so it's sequencing in all its forms and so the question with that is um, do you do a, a global test that identifies every mutation in every gene or do you come up with a list of actionable mutations, maybe 40 to 50 genes, where you just look to see if those genes, which are um, kind of modifiable with treatments that exist now, are present. And that those kind of tests already exist. There are sort of companies that provide those analyses in the U.S. And can we go backwards a little bit? Because I was familiar with the RQPCL test you talked about. Can you explain what that test is and what it does? Um, it's basically um, uh, a kind of laboratory test that can allow you to ask if a limited number of genes are overexpressed. And so 
you can design them that are relevant for myeloma. So if you want to know how to classify your, your myeloma in a very simple way um, based on like the, the TC classification, you can do that for a relatively small amount of money, do a, something that will turn around, uh, give you a result within 48 hours, and you can, you can do that and know what subtype of multiple myeloma you have, which translocations are present, and how the disease is likely to behave. Um, again, it's faster, more robust, more throughput than doing the iFish tests. Hmm. And it's applicable and to smaller numbers of cells as well, which is important. And does everybody do this test, this diagnostic test at it is is this being done everywhere that you know of or is this new or no 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 it's new um so th so what we're trying to do which is easier said than done is to actually make these tests robust in the clinical environment so that you can regularly get them we can have all of our patients get a result of such a test and avoid this, you know, oh, the fish didn't work, oh, we didn't have enough cells, because there's a lot of problems around getting adequate cells, getting a result in a meaningful time frame, and it's not standardized. That's a really important thing to say. There's no really global standardized approach, and we need to work on that kind of standardization. And who provides this um, RQ-PCL test? Is it, does, or do multiple providers sell this test? Or No, no, it, had, I mean, it hasn't got out there to provide this. It's rather easier for the providers to go along um, gene expression profiling, but hopefully within the next year the, the people from Arkansas will be, be working on kind of moving some of these tests out into the kind of general arena where you know patients from around the world will be able to to get this kind of analysis done well my doctor likens it myeloma to fighting a war and he he just he, <laughs> yeah and and he just says you know you need to know as much about the enemy as you possibly can so he was very um focused on the diagnostic testing to provide as much information as possible and that was much a much better approach than the general oncologist that I started out with that took a blood sample and said I think you have myeloma we'll start you on Velcane on Friday <laughs> and I yeah, said I'm kind of I, I agree with you I, I, I think you, you, it's a really interesting concept because the old-fashioned approach was it's myeloma we treat myeloma with Velcade or Revlimid or transplant um, not do any risk stratification, just one size fits all. And as soon as you start thinking about it, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's a, it's a kind of scary disease. It is a bit of a battle. And the more that you know, the more empowered you are to make the right treatment decisions. And the next few years are going to see an explosion in small molecule therapies that target specific kind of cellular pathways. And if you know 
those pathways are deregulated in your disease, then it exists as a possibility. You know, knowledge is power, and uh, I think you, you want to be empowered as a myeloma patient. Well, absolutely, and I think if I had the 414 and MM set, I would do a lot of personal research on that one. I happen to have the 1420 MAF-B, which is not very common. And no, so, no, God, less than 2%. Right, right, and so for me, I would like to track that particular one down because, you know, maybe the other genes don't have anything to do with me personally, and and I know every time... Patients just ask that question. How does this relate to me personally? No, it's kind of, uh, I, I think that's a, a, a very good statement. I mean, for you having mass deregulated myeloma, there, there's a whole series of information about that type of myeloma that I think is, is relevant. Um, you know, least of all, there was a paper like last year or the year after in blood from um, an investigator called Anunziata, who works with uh, in the NCI, I think, in uh, in Bethesda, and they showed that MAC inhibition may may be a particularly good way of targeting MAF-deregulated myeloma. So hmm, I'm going to have to all myelomas. <laughs> yeah, so it, you know, that, I think that's that's worth looking at. I can, that's not a, doesn't mean it will necessarily work for you, but. Uh, at least you see that people are specifically working to find solutions to that to the mass subtype of myeloma. Well, I think that every patient should do this individually uh, because not all myeloma is the same, and it is a very empowering feeling to know to know more about your disease. So, yeah, I kind of don't. I'm not sure. You know, it's like one size fits all. Some patients prefer to bury their head in the sand, but actually the the people I think that kind of really do dig into their disease actually um, do better long term. Well, I did that for the first two years just because it's too overwhelming and everything is so yeah. new. But um, I think I think you go through phases, and it's good to have an empowered, educated phase. <laughs> yeah, no, good for you. <laughs> I'm having that phase right now. So I know... <laughs> I know that you are studying how myeloma progresses, the factors that turn MGUS to myeloma and or to maybe smoldering or to full-blown myeloma, and the progression that turns smoldering to myeloma. So can you share with us what you found? So, um, you know, I've kind of gibbered on a lot about um, mutations and the role mutations have in driving cancer forward. And I was... Um, kind of um, determined to find the mutations that push myeloma forward because if you can find those mutations those are the ones that you should target and we asked a really specific question so for patients with smoldering myeloma and smoldering myeloma shouldn't have any um, end organ damage what makes those patients turn into myeloma where suddenly they start to have lytic bone lesions, anemia, bone pain? So what causes the symptoms? And the, the hypothesis was simple, was that there'd be one or two mutations that actually cause that kind of transition and they'd be targetable. What I was surprised to find was that 
we didn't really find a clear answer. Um, and that raises the issue of what is it that the cancer cells, the myeloma cells, are doing to the microenvironment, the surrounding cells that nurse and keep the myeloma cells alive. And I think there's the potential, at least now, that the cancer cells modify their environment. And as time goes on, it reaches a critical stage beyond which the, the myeloma cells suddenly get switched on into a more proliferative state and rapidly grow. And it's that transition that's mediated by the microenvironment rather than by a kind of series of mutations in the cancer cell itself. So I think you know, the conclusion to that is there are mutations that push the disease forward, but also the microenvironment in the bone marrow is really important in the transition as well. Well, can you talk for a little bit? Because that's called, let's see, I have it written down, is the NFKB pathway. Is that the bone marrow environment, or is that what regulates um, that environment? It's what regulates that environment. So NF-kappa B is one of the um, important um, pathways that we can target in myeloma. And at, at one level, um, you can target NF-kappa B with proteasome inhibitors, Falcade. Um, and so I think there's a whole kind of series of work now that goes on that building on the next generation of proteasome inhibitors and inhibiting molecules that are upstream and downstream so as you can get effects in, pla in plasma cells. So um, the NF-kappa B pathway is a really important pathway that lots of people work on and try to target. Okay, well, is there anything else that um, affects the bone marrow environment or that's causing that that we should be aware of? Um, I think we need to un understand it, but I think there's the potential for the myeloma cells to secrete um, factors which modify the stromal cells. And so, you know, the, the mass thing is, is an important thing in terms of the microenvironment. I think it's integrin beta 7 that's upregulated by the mass translocation, which makes the myeloma cells bind more strongly to the stromal cells. And when they're bound strongly, they're more resistant to chemotherapy treatment. So if you could use antibodies or molecules that disrupt that um, binding to the stroma, maybe you'll make the myeloma cells more um, sensitive to the chemotherapy, and then you'll get a better outcome after your chemotherapy. So that's just one way that you can think of modifying the microenvironment therapeutically to um, improve the outcome of treatment. And I know there are a lot of um, new cell signaling pathway and monoclonal antibodies that's just barely start. It seems like it's just beginning, and there are a lot of them in, in the phase one kind of approach. Is there such a thing as a monoclonal antibody for a particular gene, or is it just these proteins that are expressed or things that are secreted in the cells? Um, so it's mainly for things that are secreted in the cells at, at one level, but um, I'm no expert at uh, immunotherapy, um, 
but it looks to me like there are a number of antibodies now that can improve the activity of the immune system against the myeloma cells. So I guess the paradigm for that was that Revlimid seems to work by enhancing the immune effect against the myeloma cells, um, and that can be improved by adding in elituzumab, which is one of, one of the antibodies. But there are now antibodies that are being developed in melanoma and not myeloma that may mm-hmm. actually be effective for myeloma patients. And so one of the ways forward to overcome this reliance on targeting specific mutations is to enhance the immune system, which just works against all cells in many respects. And this immune enhancement may be a way of keeping people in remission for a longer period of time. Okay, and I was doing a little research on just my translocation with that particular gene and got online and found a site called Gene Cards that tells you what all these genes do specifically. Mm-hmm. And, and I found this list of monoclonal antibodies that target that specific gene. So I was just kind of curious with your genetics background if you've ever heard of monoclonal antibodies that target a particular gene, like MMSET or something like that. There's um, a difference um, in in the terminology. So, by definition, monoclonal antibodies are, are specific against um, more or less a single target. So, if you wanted to stain for math, you would use a monoclonal antibody directed against math, and you'd be able to specifically see if a cell expressed math or not. That may not block the activity of math. So you specifically don't want to detect it. You want something that interferes with its functionality. And that may need something that's not a monoclonal antibody. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Now, I was reading on a patient blog that's very knowledgeable, and she was just saying that how MGUF to smoldering and to myeloma is all just sort of progressing towards plasma cell leukemia for everyone. And yeah. myeloma is kind of a stage in that. Can you explain what what that is? And I guess is that why after treatment or just maybe time, the disease starts getting more aggressive? So um, I kind of need to take a step back um, with this. So I think that patient is is right. Um, that that really, you know, we're all dying um, in, in a way. It's just the rate at which that happens that's important and so similarly in myeloma everybody's progressing to plasma cell leukemia but the rate is really important you know if you've Mm -hmm. got mugus the rate could be measured in hundreds of hundreds of years Um, and for some patients you know they never get to that stage so you need to put it into that sort of context although conceptually Mm -hmm. that's right for an individual patient that could be very very worrying that they all think that they're mm-hmm. going to develop plasma cell leukemia. So I'd really like to, to make that point. But if you just take it as a simple concept, then I think it's true. And it's all about evolution. So myeloma is not, even within a single patient, there are different cells belonging to the same type of myeloma that have different mutations, different behaviors. And when you put treatment onto a 
you know, a myeloma in a person, what you do is kill the sensitive cells and you tend to leave cells that are resistant. And so over time, the resistant cells come to dominate and that's why people relapse. And it's why if you have one type of chemotherapy to start with, when you relapse, your doctor will give you a different type of chemotherapy with a different mode of action. And so that's why we, a lot of the time we've made good progress by specifically getting people into remission by killing cells that are sensitive to different agents. And it's why continuing to find new agents is really important for myeloma patients. Mm-hmm. Some of the lessons from this sort of like, it's called intraclonal heterogeneity, um, are that if you want to get the best results for patients, if you want to try and specifically cure patients, you need to front load the treatment so that you get rid of all of the bad clones that are present as soon as you can and you don't leave them to strengthen over time. Hmm. So I'm not sure hit, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a more hit it hard at the beginning kind of approach. Yeah, I think that's one of the um, the lessons from um, what we're understanding about from this in intratumoral, intraclonal heterogeneity that we see. And then our last interview was about progenitor cells. So have you done any research on on how we can not only just get rid of all the fully developed you know, heavily produced, potentially, plasma cells, but the earlier cells? So um, I think um, I keep looking at this data, and it seems to me that um, the target in myeloma that we need to kill is a cell that looks and behaves like a plasma cell itself. So I think we know what the target is, it's just some of the cells become uh, have the capacity to self-renew and to proliferate. And any cell that has that capacity is capable of transferring myeloma from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And so we've taken um, some cells from a patient, put them into a mouse model, and we can clearly see that the plasma cells transmit the disease and that within a myeloma clone that there are multiple stem cells that have different characteristics. They can have um, a different phenotype and they can also have different genetics. And at any one time there are probably multiple myeloma propagating cells, I prefer to to call them, Mm -hmm. that are able to divide Um, proliferate and pass the the myeloma clone from one place to another. And another thing that comes from it is we all tend to think of myeloma as being a homogeneous disease that's a bit like leukemia that's in the bone marrow. But actually these new scans that we're doing like diffusion-weighted MRI actually show us that I think myeloma is like a metastatic disease where you have a tumor at one site that can move to another site that then can move to another site. And these focal lesions that we see in the myeloma patients' bone marrows with these technologies are actually the site of 
uh, myeloma propagating cells, cells that have different characteristics to the rest of the marrow, that we really need to understand the biology of these cells. Now, when you talk about the mouse model, have you taken an MGUS or a smoldering type myeloma and tried to put that in a mouse and and then try to add things to, to my very own yeah, no, that, scientific way? Kind of been, yeah, <laughs> we did like, um, it was mainly with, um, with cell lines that we could, could, if you can inject the cells directly into the mouse uh, leg bone, you can get good engraftment and uh, so we did this with several plasma cell leukemia patients and were able to get good engraftment into the mouse and that's where that data from um, you know the heterogeneity in the myeloma stem cell comes from because uh, to the best of my knowledge nobody has really done that type of experiment looking at the genetics of what are present in the mouse when the mouse has been engrafted well, I think it'd be really interesting because I know you know you look at studies that show certain um, certain lines of work, like farming or something that has, and maybe there's something being added to that mix that's the trigger. I don't I don't know, mm. but that could that could trigger it to progression. But I'm not sure. Well, you had an article in August that came out about the Turk gene related to myeloma and aging. Can you, would you like to share what you found for people who have not had a chance to read that article? Um, do I want to share that? Um, <laughs> just remind me exactly of the context that you're asking. Which study was this? Oh, it was a, it was um, an article that came out about myeloma and and the gene for aging. And it said it brought the number of genes that we know about myeloma to yeah. seven. So I was kind of curious so, about what those seven are. So the bottom line uh, of this was that um, one of the things that patients always ask is, why have I got myeloma? Uh-huh. Why, me, why me? And um, there's a tendency then to, to focus on things in the environment and we've done a lot of studies on what causes myeloma over the years. But really, nobody has come up with a, a good environmental cause for, for myeloma as yet. Mm-hmm. So in order to try and understand what the factors are that may predispose people to develop myeloma, we did a study which is called a GWAS analysis, where you take hundreds of patients with myeloma and compare their genome to hundreds of people who don't get myeloma. And if you see associations with specific genes in the patients with myeloma that aren't present in the normal controls, you know that they predispose to myeloma. That's, that's basically the, the, the scientific approach. And so we did a number of those studies and found genes that seemed to predispose people to developing myeloma. And we found six genes in total which seemed to predispose um, an individual that has that genetic makeup to developing myeloma. The risks for any individual are not high. 
So people shouldn't worry that they're passing the risks for myeloma onto their children because these are genes that don't really behave in that sort of fashion. So there are now six genes which seem to increase your, your risk of developing myeloma that you could actually look for in your, the cells that you have that are, are not cancerous. The interesting thing is one of the genes, so you talked about translocations and you've got a mass mm-hmm. translocation. Well, there's a translocation called the 1114, right. which actually deregulates a gene called cyclin D1. So that's kind of interesting because if you inherit a variant in cyclin D1 that you can measure, your chances of getting a translocation into the gene in your myeloma are increased substantially. And so, you know, there are genes now that predispose you to getting myeloma and genes that predispose you to specific molecular subtypes of myeloma. And it's probably not one single gene. There may be as many as 20 or even more that contribute to the, to the risk in an individual. But across a population, they really do start to explain some of the reasons why there are people who develop myeloma. So cyclin D1 is, and 1114 is a less aggressive form of myeloma from what I understand, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay. And more people have that, it seems like. Yeah, about 20% of the total. Mm-hmm. And could you could you name off the six, if you don't mind? Uh, no. <laughs> my, my memory doesn't stretch for that, and if I try okay. to do it, I'm going to embarrass myself. So I, right. I apologize for that, but <laughs> no, I don't no, have no, the don't paper worry. in front of me. But, no, um, don't worry. And, and I know there's that... There's a couple that are... Yeah, that you are, mentioned... That are, no, go ahead. I was going to say there's a couple that are interesting and you know scientifically it seems that some of the pathways that get mutations later on in the gene process in the disease process are affected early on so it looks like MYC again is a gene that's deregulated you can inherit variants that affect the way MYC behaves that may predispose you to developing myeloma and is MYC so associated does, with a associated with a particular translocation, or is just it's just present across? Yeah, we, no, we've described there's a kind of um, there's a load of translocations into MYC that really hasn't hit prime time. We've just sent a paper off to Blood, and 20% of patients present with a MYC translocation, and again, it's another one of these poor prognostic lesions but people aren't even aware of that or testing for that as yet. Is this the new 717 trans- translocation? That- no, no, no. This is, oh. um, this is nothing to do with the immunoglobulin genes. It's due to um, translocating kind of different parts of the genome in front of MYC, which make it um, get upregulated and sort of drives the cells to grow faster. Okay. Well... I've taken a lot of time asking you about your um, your research, but would you like to talk about your clinical trials, the ones that you have open right now? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we um, are trying to, to do a number of things with, with clinical trials. Um, so one of the things I'm interested in doing is pomalidomide 
great new drug um, uh, with dexamethasone, you seem to get responses um, in 30 to 40% of people. Um, it would be good to have a test that said this is one of the 30 to 40% of people who are going to respond, or you could look at it the other way around, it's, which is how can we identify before we start treating people those who aren't going to respond because you're wasting their time, you're not active against the disease. So identifying non-responders to a, to a drug would be really interesting. Um, I'm also interested in maintenance treatment. I think maintenance looks like a really good way forward to me. The Revlimid as maintenance, I'm convinced with the results that it does improve outcomes, does improve overall survival. There are a number of studies that are already there. There'll be new data at ASH. All of it's consistent with Revlimid being a good approach for maintenance. Personally, I'm interested in looking how these new oral proteasome inhibitors function to improve the outcome of myeloma by using them in the maintenance setting. So we're trying to set up a maintenance study that addresses that question. So all of these questions I, I think are important and we have a network of centers in the UK where we try to do studies together so as we can kind of bring these new drugs close to patients so uh, as they can can access them close to their home without having to travel to tertiary centers. And um, on, when it comes to maintenance, uh, I know I know this might be popular now, so I guess learning more about it, do we want to do maintenance for how long? How long are we talking? And so, is it a um, lower dosage? I, I think or? That, yeah, so I think some of the important characteristics of maintenance are that it doesn't impair the patient's quality of life. I think quality of life is, is really important. Um, it's difficult to know. If you use something for six months, that's not really maintenance. That's consolidation aimed at reducing the amount of the tumor cells present. Sometimes you might consider that continuing treatment until disease progression really is what maintenance is about because it affects the biology of the disease. So I've got a lot of sympathy for continuing maintenance until disease progression. But you can make arguments for doing it for limited periods of time, like for three, you know, two to four years. Um, there's no specific answer to your question, and only time and good clinical trials are really going to address what, what the best way of doing it is. But it looks very much like when you get into a remission, that maintenance is is very powerful way of keeping you in a remission long term. And maybe we can talk about that from the importance of clinical trials because I know with over 400 articles you're running, and and clinical trials you're running many clinical trials. So how important is patient participation in clinical trials for it's you? Really crucial. Um, the patients. Um, so. Again, we have a, a, a I would say powerful, but I, I think that's the wrong word. It's a, it's a very helpful um, 
informed patient organization in the UK called Myeloma UK mm-hmm. that actually provide information to patients. They vet the trials to see that the trials are useful for, for patients and they encourage patients through their information to partake in clinical trials. And so clinical trials are a really important way forward. You know, you really should, if you're going to treat somebody, you need to use that as an experiment really because the experiment is if a patient does good, why did they do good? And if you can learn from that and use that to make the outcome of the next patient better, then that's a very positive thing. And most patients would encourage their doctors to behave like that, to collect information, review their results, and use it to improve outcomes. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason we started this series is because I think if we, in, with less than 5%, maybe more like 3% of patients participating in myeloma clinical trials, it's just going to take a really long time <laughs> to get no, to the conclusions yeah. that we need to get yeah. to. And if we can do something as patients, um, I guess a follow-up question, and probably my last question will be, how can patients help you further your important research? So the really interesting thing about patients is that they always, always want to help. If, if you ever ask a patient, um, you know, can we do this? Do you mind if we do that? They always agree. And yet a small minority of vociferous people have kind of made the whole environment about getting tissue from people, studying it in the laboratory, entering into clinical trials. They've made that all very um, top-heavy with legislation, which has slowed down the um, the the kind of ability to set up a clinical trial and to look at material. And so I, I think the, the silent minority of patients who I know to be helpful should speak up and encourage clinical trials and encourage biological studies based on their samples. And I think patients and patient organizations can do a lot in that respect. Well, we are, we are happy to help. Thank you. <laughs> As always, like I said, <laughs> patients always want to help, and they do. Yes, because our lives are on the line, so we yeah, have a, sure. a very, very vested interest in helping. Okay, well, I would like to open it up for caller questions. I've taken up a lot of time, so I don't know if we'll have time for many, but um, if you have questions about Dr. Morgan's research, you can call into 347-637-2631. And once you're on the call, press 1 on your keypad. And I also have a, a question or two that came in via email. So, um, okay, um, the first caller, go ahead. Oh, hey, uh, Jenny and, and Dr. Morgan. Dr. Morgan, thanks for taking the phone call. It's been a, a pleasure listening to this. And it's, um, <clears throat> at some levels, it's been one of the more exciting interviews as we think about the getting into the details of uh, personal medicine. So treating mutations rather than treating the disease is, it was just, just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. So do you have any plans to run a trial that is gene-specific, or do you know of any trials that are gene-specific? So um, I I think um, Bart in in Little Rock is um, thinking about taking patients um, as they come into his um, 
high-risk studies, doing mutation analysis for um, actionable mutations, and then really thinking about adjusting the treatment based on the presence of those mutations. And the key sort of candidate gene currently is probably um, MEK inhibition and inhibitors that target the, the RAS pathway. Um, it's scientifically, the fact that 50% of all myeloma patients have RAS mutations has to be uh, meaningful about something, I think. And so uh, I think it's a clue that we can't afford to, to pass up on. Okay. Um, this, um, and so that's so the little little rock. Anything other than little rock? Um, I don't know. In, in London, we're we're trying to do something something similar um, for high risk patients, but I think it's still not really at a prime time uh, as yet. Um, but I think it'll take off over the next one to two years and it will become very commonplace in that time. And I have a follow-up question for that, I guess. Would, would there be any benefit to constructing plasma cell leukemia kind of trials that, that involve myeloma Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think so. I, I think that falls into the, the high-risk kind of disease. I think, you know, it's, it's difficult for people when they get plasma cell leukemia because they you know, we we really don't know what's the best approach, and and we need to to maximise the chances over time of improving the outcome of plasma cell leukemia, people with extra medullary disease, people with metastases in their liver. All of these are really important questions. Well, it just seems like this. If oh, go ahead, sorry. I'm sorry. Just I just want one just a follow up to the the, the other question. It's and this is maybe off into the weeds, and so you don't have to answer it, but um, I, I've, I've read about patients organizing themselves into patient-organized trials, and I, and I know that's probably fingers on a chalkboard to a doctor. <laughs> 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 so, but, but like, what, what if the patients got together, and you know, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting this is a great idea, just a question, and organize themselves into the different mutations and um, and, it, and if so there I, are, I can I can I get what you're saying. I, I kind of think um, it's a very um, interesting kind of idea. Um, so part of the issue with being a doctor is that we're self-interested because we're doctors in treating people and our own ideas. And politicians, healthcare providers, you name it. Um, they kind of don't always give doctors the credibility they, they deserve. If you're a patient or a group of patients with a specific variance, it's very difficult, I think, for providers of any sort to ignore patient power because you're the ones that have the issues. You're the ones with the disease. It is all about you uh, it's not about doctors and so it's not such a bad idea how it would pan out i have no idea of course but um <laughs> it's a very interesting approach <laughs> there'd, there'd be cats and dogs raining in the streets and be kept pandemonium <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the lunatics in charge of the asylum 
right. Well, thank you for taking the question. You're welcome. Okay, thank you. And and maybe a related um, email in question from Sandra was how if if someone wanted to join an international trial like yours and lived in the United States, how would they go about doing that? There's absolutely um, no infrastructure or legal um, framework to allow it. And that's a a really um, incredible thing to say that you would need legal frameworks to do like that because you'd think it would be the most simple thing in the world for somebody who wanted to go on to a trial to go on to it. But the rule makers have made it really quite constrained and... um, yeah, they've made it very difficult, I think. And I think we need to pull back a little bit from the you know, current legislation, which is aimed at protecting people, um, but it's protecting people so much these days that it's slowing up the pace of change in research. And I think it needs to come back a bit more to the midline. So if someone wanted to join your trial, they just they physically couldn't, they wouldn't be allowed in it, or they would have to pay for it themselves, or how would, what do you, what do you mean? So, um, they would have to be in the UK, in the, in the UK healthcare system, um, and the trial would have to be approved in that hospital, they'd have to have their treatment in that hospital, or one of the hospitals where the trials were being run, um, otherwise it would be really really difficult and that's an issue across Europe and across the different states in the US as well I think hmm. well that's fascinating because I would have never I would have never thought that well wow, we have taken a lot of your time we are very very grateful for your research and for your participation and we are all looking forward to your, your learning more about personalized medicine for myeloma patients. Um, we are eager to help you make it a reality. And we wish you the very best in continuing your excellent research and work. No, I'd so, like to thank you for your um, kind of hospitality, your insightful questions. You didn't make it easy for me. It was uh, educational, so thanks a lot. (laughs) Thanks for this, and look after yourself. Well, thank you so much for your participation. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next inpatient video interview as we learn more about how we can help drive to a cure 